This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter. April 2007. Summer by Edith Wharton. Chapter 10. The lake at last, a sheet of shining metal brooded over by drooping trees. Charity and Harney had secured a boat, and, getting away from the wharves and the refreshment booths, they drifted idly along, hugging the shadow of the shore. Where the sun struck the water, its shafts flamed back blindingly at the heat-veiled sky, and the least shade was black by contrast. The lake was so smooth that the reflection of the trees on its edge seemed enameled on a solid surface, but gradually, as the sun declined, the water grew transparent, and Charity, leaning over, plunged her fascinated gaze into depths so clear that she saw the inverted tree-tops interwoven with the green growths of the bottom. They rounded a point at the farther end of the lake, and entering an inlet, pushed their bow against a protruding tree-trunk. A green veil of willows overhung them. Beyond the trees, wheat-fields sparkled in the sun, and all along the horizon the clear hills throbbed with light. Charity leaned back in the stern, and Harney unshipped the oars, and lay in the bottom of the boat, without speaking. Ever since their meeting at the Creston Pool, he had been subject to these brooding silences, which were as different as possible from the pauses when they ceased to speak, because words were needless. At such times his face wore the expression she had seen on it, when she had looked in at him from the darkness, and again there came over her a sense of the mysterious distance between them but usually his fits of abstraction were followed by bursts of gaiety that chased away the shadow before it chilled her. She was still thinking of the ten dollars he had handed to the driver of the runabout. It had given them twenty minutes of pleasure, and it seemed unimaginable that anyone should be able to buy amusement at that rate. With ten dollars he might have bought her an engagement ring. She knew that Mrs. Tom Fry's, which came from Springfield and had a diamond in it, had cost only eight seventy-five, but she did not know why the thought had occurred to her. Harney would never buy her an engagement ring. They were friends and comrades, but no more. He had been perfectly fair to her. He had never said a word to mislead her. She wondered what the girl was like whose hand was waiting for his ring. Boats were beginning to thicken on the lake, and the clang of incessantly arriving trolleys announced the return of the crowds from the ball-field. The shadows lengthened across the pearl-gray water, and two white clouds near the sun were turning golden. On the opposite shore men were hammering hastily at a wooden scaffolding in a field. Charity asked what it was for. "'Why the fireworks? I suppose there'll be a big show.' Harney looked at her, and a smile crept into his moody eyes. "'Have you never seen any good fireworks?' "'Miss Hatchard always sends up lovely rockets on the fourth. she answered doubtfully. Oh! His contempt was unbounded. I mean a big performance, like this, illuminated boats and all the rest. She flushed at the picture. Do they send them up from the lake, too? Rather. Did you notice that big raft we passed? It's wonderful to see the rockets completing their orbits down under one's feet. She said nothing, and he put the oars into the rowlocks. If we stay, we'd better go and pick up something to eat. But how can we get back afterwards? she ventured, feeling it would break her heart if she missed it. 
He consulted a timetable, found a ten o'clock train, and reassured her. The moon rises so late that it will be dark by eight, and we'll have over an hour of it. Twilight fell, and lights began to show along the shore. The trolleys, roaring out from Nettleton, became great luminous serpents, coiling in and out among the trees. The wooden eating-houses at the lake's edge danced with lanterns, and the dusk echoed with laughter and shouts, and the clumsy splashing of oars. Harney and Charity had found a table in the corner of a balcony built over the lake, and were patiently awaiting an unattainable chowder. Close under them the water lapped the piles, agitated by the evolutions of a little white steamboat trellised with coloured globes which was to run passengers up and down the lake. It was already black with them, as it sheared off on its first trip. Suddenly Charity heard a woman's laugh behind her. The sound was familiar, and she turned to look. A band of showily dressed girls and dapper young men wearing badges of secret societies, with new straw hats, tilted far back on their square clipped hair, had invaded the balcony and were loudly clamoring for a table. The girl in the lead was the one who had laughed. She wore a large hat with a long white feather, and from under its brim her painted eyes looked at Charity with amused recognition. "'Say, if this ain't like old home week,' she remarked to the girl at her elbow, and giggles and glances passed between them. Charity knew at once that the girl with the white feather was Julia Hawes. She had lost her freshness, and the paint under her eyes made her face seem thinner, but her lips had the same lovely curve, and the same cold mocking smile, as if there were some secret absurdity in the person she was looking at, and she had instantly detected it. Charity flushed to the forehead and looked away. She felt herself humiliated by Julia's sneer, and vexed that the mockery of such a creature should affect her. She trembled lest Harney should notice that the noisy troop had recognized her, but they found no table free, and passed on tumultuously. Presently there was a soft rush through the air, and a shower of silver fell from the blue evening sky. In another direction pale Roman candles shot up singly through the trees, and a fire-haired rocket swept the horizon like a portent. Between these intermittent flashes the velvet curtains of the darkness were descending, and in the intervals of eclipse the voices of the crowds seemed to sink to smothered murmurs. Charity and Harney, dispossessed by newcomers, were at length obliged to give up their table and struggle through the throng about the boat landings. For a while there seemed no escape from the tide of late arrivals. But finally Harney secured the last two places on the stand, from which the more privileged were to see the fireworks. The seats were at the end of a row, one above the other. Charity had taken off her hat to have an uninterrupted view, and whenever she leaned back to follow the curve of some dishevelled rocket, she could feel Harney's knees against her head. After a while the scattered fireworks ceased, a longer interval of darkness followed, and then the whole night broke into flower. From every point of the horizon gold and silver arches sprang up and crossed each other. Sky orchards broke into blossom, shed their flaming petals, and hung their branches with golden fruit, and all the while the air was filled with the soft, supernatural hum, as though great birds were building their nests in those invisible treetops. Now and then there came a lull, and a wave of moonlight swept the lake. In a flash it revealed hundreds of boats, steel-dark against lustrous ripples. Then it withdrew as if with a furling of vast, translucent wings. Charity's heart throbbed with delight. It was as if all the latent beauty of things had been unveiled to her. 
she could not imagine that the world held anything more wonderful. But near her she heard someone say, "'You wait till you see the set-piece,' and instantly her hopes took a fresh flight. At last, just as it was beginning to seem as though the whole arch of the sky were one great lid pressed against her dazzled eyeballs, and striking out of them continuous jets of jewelled light, the velvet darkness settled down again, and a murmur of expectation ran through the crowd. "'Now, now!' the same voice said excitedly, and Charity, grasping the hat on her knee, crushed it tight in an effort to restrain her rapture. For a moment the night seemed to grow more impenetrably black, then a great picture stood out against it like a constellation. It was surmounted by a golden scroll bearing the inscription, Washington Crossing the Delaware, and across a flood of motionless golden ripples the national hero passed, erect, solemn, and gigantic, standing with folded arms in the stern of a slowly moving golden boat. A long, oh, burst from the spectators. The stand creaked and shook with their blissful trepidations. Oh, Charity gasped. She had forgotten where she was, had at last forgotten even Harney's nearness. She seemed to have been caught up in the stars. The picture vanished, and darkness came down. In the obscurity she felt her head clasped by two hands. Her face was drawn backward, and Harney's lips were pressed on hers. With sudden vehemence he wound his arms about her, holding her head against his breast while she gave him back his kisses. An unknown Harney had revealed himself, a Harney who dominated her, and yet over whom she felt herself possessed of a new mysterious power. But the crowd was beginning to move, and he had released her. "'Come,' he said in a confused voice. He scrambled over the side of the stand, and holding up his arm caught her as she sprang to the ground. He passed his arm about her waist, steadying her against the descending rush of people. And she clung to him, speechless, exultant, as if all the crowding and confusion about them were a mere vain stirring of the air. "'Come,' he repeated, "'we must try to make the trolley.' He drew her along, and she followed, still in her dream. They walked as if they were one, so isolated in ecstasy, that the people jostling them on every side seemed impalpable. But when they reached the terminus, the illuminated trolley was already clanging on its way, its platforms black with passengers. The cars waiting behind it were as thickly packed, and the throng about the terminus was so dense that it seemed hopeless to struggle for a place. "'Last trip up the lake!' a megaphone bellowed from the wharf, and the lights of the little steamboat came dancing out of the darkness. "'No use waiting here. Shall we run up the lake?' Harney suggested. They pushed their way back to the edge of the water, just as the gangplank lowered from the white side of the boat. The electric light at the end of the wharf flashed full on the descending passengers, and among them Charity caught sight of Julia Hawes, her white feather askew, and the face under it flushed with coarse laughter. As she stepped from the gangplank she stopped short, her dark-ringed eyes darting malice. "'Hello, Charity Royal,' she called out, and then, looking back over her shoulder, "'Didn't I tell you it was a family party? Here's Grandpa's little daughter come to take him home.' A snigger ran through the group and then towering above them, and steadying himself by the handrail in a desperate effort at erectness, Mr. Royal stepped stiffly ashore. Like the young men of the party, he wore a secret society emblem in the buttonhole of his black frock-coat. His head was covered by a new Panama hat, and his narrow black tie, half undone, 
dangled down on his rumpled shirt-front. His face, a livid brown, with red blotches of anger, and lips sunken in like old man's, was a lamentable ruin in the searching glare. He was just behind Julia Hawes, and had one hand on her arm, but as he left the gangplank he freed himself, and moved a step or two away from his companions. He had seen Charity at once, and his glance passed slowly from her to Harney, whose arm was still about her. He stood staring at them, and trying to master the senile quiver of his lips. Then he drew himself up with the tremulous majesty of drunkenness, and stretched out his arm. "'You whore! You damn, bare-headed whore, you!' he enunciated slowly. There was a scream of tipsy laughter from the party, and Charity involuntarily put her hands to her head. She remembered that her hat had fallen from her lap when she jumped up to leave the stand, and suddenly she had a vision of herself, hatless, dishevelled, with a man's arm about her, confronting that drunken crew, headed by her guardian's pitiable figure. The picture filled her with shame. She had known since childhood about Mr. Royal's habits, had seen him, as she went up to bed, sitting morosely in his office, a bottle at his elbow, or coming home, heavy and quarrelsome, from his business expeditions to Hepburn or Springfield. But the idea of his associating himself publicly with a band of disreputable girls and barroom loafers was new and dreadful to her. "'Oh!' she said in a gasp of misery, and releasing herself from Harney's arm, she went straight up to Mr. Royal. "'You come home with me. You come right home with me,' she said in a low, stern voice, as if she had not heard his apostrophe. And one of the girls called out, "'Say, how many fellers does she want?' There was another laugh, followed by a pause of curiosity, during which Mr. Royal continued to glare at Charity. At length his twitching lips parted. "'I said, you damn whore,' he repeated with precision, steadying himself on Julia's shoulder. Laughs and jeers were beginning to spring up from the circle of people beyond their group, and a voice called out from the gangway, "'Now then, step lively there. All aboard!' The pressure of approaching and departing passengers forced the actors into the rapid scene apart, and pushed them back into the throng. Charity found herself clinging to Harney's arm and sobbing desperately. Mr. Royal had disappeared, and in the distance she heard the receding sound of Julia's laugh. The boat, laden to the taffrail, was puffing away on her last trip. End of chapter 10